HBP studio. You're listening to the 86th episode of Hipster Baseball Podcast. HBP, I'm Dorian, and on today's podcast, we watch minor league games in Pennsylvania and Maryland, ask, why are the Boston Red Sox rebuilding? Wonder if the Atlanta Braves signed Michael Harris II too early? Go on a Puerto Rican basketball journey with St. Louis Cardinals' Yadier Molina, and special guest Jeremy Bourne, CEO of NFTG, joins us to talk about NFTs and sports. But first, we start this episode like we do all the others, by drinking good, delicious, American-made beer. And today, in my hand, I have something called Puddler's Row. It's an English-style ale from Conshohocken Brewing Company in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. It took me like 10 tries to actually, to actually pronounce that correctly. <laughs> I'm going to take a drink. One, one second. Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. I had no idea where it was, and I'm sure you don't either. It's actually outside of Philadelphia. And it surprised me to find out the amount of minor league teams that are actually in Pennsylvania, especially around the, the Philadelphia area. And I and I knew and some of these some of these teams I knew about. I just had no idea where they actually were located, and they all happened to be located in Pennsylvania. The Altoona Curve, which is the Double A team of the Pittsburgh Pirates, Altoona's midway between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. You have the Harrisburg Senators, also the Double A team of the Washington Nationals. You have the Reading Phillies, obviously, a double-A team of the Philadelphia Phillies. And I actually had the pleasure of, of watching third baseman Cesar Prieto. They don't play in Pennsylvania. He plays with the team, the Bowie Bay Sox, that play in Maryland. They hosted the Somerset Patriots. That's also the double-A team of the New York Yankees. And you have, obviously, the, the Bowie Bay Sox are the double-A team of the Boston Orioles. The Boston Orioles. The Baltimore Orioles. <laughs> the Somerset Patriots. I actually thought that they were the double-A team of the Boston Red Sox because I'm thinking Somerset, the Patriots, surely they're like in New Hampshire or Massachusetts or Connecticut or somewhere. I'm very, very wrong because apparently there's a Somerset, New Jersey. I had no idea about. We're talking about the Orioles, the Yankees, both in the American League East. And that made me think because of my mistaken connection, I still want to talk about the Boston Red Sox, <laughs> even though they aren't in this minor league section. You know, unfortunately, Boston's in last place in the American League East division, and that's really disappointing. And that's coming from someone who is not anywhere near a Boston Red Sox fan. Because if you remember, at the end of June of this season, they were on a tear. They had won seven in a row. They had won 32 of their previous 44 games, and they were roaring back into playoff contention to get a wild card spot. Then the front office said, well, Boston's were going through a rebuilding year. They didn't trade for it. They traded people away. They did nothing during the, the before the tra- uh, the trade deadline. And then I remembered that the chief baseball officer of the Boston Red Sox is Haim Haim Bloom, because he comes from the Tampa Bay Rays, who are masters at finding nickels and dimes in the sofa and turning them into dollar bills or ten dollar bills. They they sign players really cheap. They sign players that have been let go. I'm talking about the Rays. The Rays sign players that have been overlooked, and they turn them into stars. They really do. They put up star numbers, even though they're not considered stars in baseball, but they put up star power numbers when they go to Tampa. The Tampa Bay Rays owner, Stuart Sternberg, he never spends. God forbid the guy would actually spend for a free agent or even spend for some of his players, with the exception of Wander Franco. But even then, they're getting him the, their shortstop phenom. They're getting him at a cheap price for, for, for I don't know, 10, 12 years. I just had a drink. Back to Boston. So John Henry, who owns what Fenway Group, all, that is the umbrella parent company of the Boston Red Sox. He went out and hired High and Bloom in 2020, and I'm and I think a lot of people were excited that High and Bloom, but Bloom was going to bring in that analytical that analytical talent and the ability to look for diamonds in the rough everywhere, and coupled with the endless money that the Boston Red Sox generate, the Boston Red Sox generate a torrent of money. They're probably, I have no statistical backup on this, but they're probably the top in the top three teams that generate an insane amount of money in Major League Baseball. But here we are in 2022, last place. They probably will not re-sign their shortstop, Xander Bogarts. Their, their pitcher that they gave up so much for like three years ago, Chris Sale, 
he has a season-ending injury. This has no. This is not Ryan Bloom's fault. Obviously, this is nobody's fault, but just bad luck. Because Chris Sale missed most of the season this year because of a he broke his right wrist while riding a bike. Chris Sale had Tommy John surgery back in 2020. I mean, we talked about Chris Sale extensively back in episode 81 that he was recovering from a broken rib cage. Someone broke his heart. He cut his pinky fingernail too short. He stubbed his toe against some Legos his kids left out. He suffered brain freeze from eating too much Jenny's Splendid ice cream. <laughs> Most of that I just made up. But it's, I'm being serious that he had a broken rib cage. He had a broken wrist. He had Tommy John surgery. Uh, you almost feel as if someone needs to put Chris, Be Chris Sale in a bubble. Make him the bubble boy of Boston. I don't know. And you know what I find interesting is that Chris Sale broke his wrist riding a bike and that ended his that ended his year this year because that happened about two or three weeks ago but no one gives a crap about it but Fernando Tatis Jr the shortstop of the San Diego Padres he broke his wrist in an off-season motorcycle accident and everyone was up in arms is like how can you be so careless this that and the other I understand that motorcycles are on the on your contract as a major league baseball player that you cannot participate in x amount of activities in certain activities because these, play these players, these teams are investing so much in you that they're saying, no, you cannot go and skydive. No, you can't play Russian roulette. No, you can't be on a motorcycle. No, I'm not going to go into Fernando Tatis Jr.'s nonsense of his uh, performance-enhancing drug suspension. But like I said, no one cares that Sale broke his wrist riding a bicycle. I think it's just he's he has this perception of being so injury-prone that just baseball rolled their eyes and, and were like, well... What do you expect? It's Chris Sale. Something was going to happen to him. And when I think of these rebuilding stuff, which is insane to use the word rebuild in the same sentence as the Boston Red Sox because of the amount of money they have, I'm thinking of the, ma the, the Red Sox manager, Alex Cora. Imagine Cora sitting down in, in Bloom's office and saying, look, Bloom, we're rebuilding, but this is messing with my career. And this is just also messing with the careers of my players. Cora has been the... Red Sox manager for four seasons. In those four seasons, the Red Sox have won a World Series. They also have been to the American League Championship Series last year, and they lost. And when you're when teams go under, franchises go under a rebuilding period, it's never one year. It's always two, three, four years, or never-ending, kind of like the Pittsburgh Pirates. That messes with people's money. It messes with their reputation because all of that is sacrificed at the altar of rebuilding. And if the Red Sox are are rebuilding in 2023, the Red Sox are still rebuilding in 2024, Haim Bloom might find himself sacrificed at the altar of rebuilding when John Henry says, well, I have to give the fans a scapegoat. Obviously, John Henry's not going to fire himself. He's the owner of the Red Sox. He's just going to have to find a scapegoat and say, Boston fans, you know I'm all about winning. We've won three and four World Series under my under my guidance, under my ownership. It was Haim Bloom's fault. It was Alex Cora's fault. It was Chris Sale and his injury-prone ways fall and the Legos that he always steps on. John Henry's not going to fire himself. And when you think about it, John Henry has so many interests in all of sports. His Fenway group owns Liverpool Football Club, which is in the English Premier League. He just bought the National Hockey League's Pittsburgh Penguins. And they, John Henry, they're actively looking to buy a National Basketball Association team. So they're having, they have a Major League Baseball team. They have an NBA team. They now, no, they will have an NBA team. I don't know which one. They have an NHL team. They have an English Football League team. English Football League. No, English Premier League. Excuse me. Maybe John Henry's eyes are wavering away from Boston and been like, and, and are like, hi, I'm, make sure that this team is self-sustaining, that the money that we spend on the players and the baseball operations and the upkeep of the stadium are l just less than the money we bring in from from the gates, from concessions, from the gambling sites, from digital assets that we're going to be talking about later in this, this episode, TV rights, etc., 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 etc. I just took another drink of this delicious. What is it? What is this called? Con Conchahokan, Conchahokan, Conchahokan. I don't know. I don't know how to. I don't know how to pronounce it, but I know how to drink it. It's delicious. And as a baseball fan, it's disappointing to see. How the best how the Boston Red Sox are currently operating, but if you're a Baltimore Orioles fan, it's also disappointing because we talked about the the Angelos who own the Baltimore Orioles a few episodes ago. They're surprising everyone in baseball by being in the the playoff hunt. 
Because right now the Orioles are just two and a half games behind the last wild card spot in the American League. And this is after they traded away Trey Mancini, their first baseman, which is, they shouldn't have done that. But nevertheless, Boston fans are going to continue to show up for Red Sox games and follow them on social media. Baltimore fans are going to continue to, to go to, well, are they going to continue to go to Camden Yards? <laughs> Even though Camden Yards is a pretty historic stadium now, not as historic as Fenway, but still pretty historic. But let's say this. Baltimore fans will continue to follow the Orioles on social media. You're not going to unfollow your favorite team no matter how upset you are at the owner, the direction of the team, the lack of investment, etc. And you know what? You can do the same with us. Our Twitter account handle is at HPP4040 and our Instagram account is Hipster Baseball Podcast. And young people love social media. And the Atlanta Braves also love their young players. Because I want to talk about Michael Harris II, who is the 21-year-old rookie center fielder for the Atlanta Braves. He's played just 75 games, and the Braves rewarded him with an eight-year, $72 million contract. This just happened last week. Now Michael Harris II is under contract until the 2030 season. The Braves are right are currently in second place in the National League East Division, three games behind the New York Mets. Paris is hitting two, his batting average right now is 287. His OPS plus is 124. As we know, OPS plus and average player is 100. So Michael Harris is just above, he's above average player. He's playing, he's playing excellent defense. When Harris was called up from double A Mississippi Brave, from the Mississippi Braves in the double A, it's all about double A today. Harris changed the dynamic of the Braves outfielder, outfield, because they were having huge problems in the center field with Adam Duvall. Because Adam Duvall's legs were just going out from under him, play, having to play center field, which is the most extraneous position in that in the outfield because you're covering so much ground. And Duvall's bat was seriously being affected because he was just too tired. It takes a special person to play excellent center field and it also give you something at bat. Obviously, Ronald Cody Jr. is not ready to even take over center field, even on a part-time basis, because he's still coming back from that ACL tear. From last year, he's still obviously playing right field. And the left field for the Braves, obviously, with the terrible Marcelo Zuna, can't play defense, and we're just trying to do a mishmash. Just left field is a band-aid, was a band-aid issue for the Atlanta Braves. Michael Harris comes and he settles everything. But nevertheless, I love how the Braves general general manager, Alex Anthopoulos, he works very quietly. He works stealthily there's never ever any rumors coming out of atlanta of like oh the braves are on track to sign player x or the braves want to trade for there's none of that the braves just do action you see the news headline boom they've signed so and so boom they traded for so and so boom i love that none of that leaking nonsense but i think that maybe alex anthopoulos has pulled the trigger too early why not wait with michael harris a second as i said He's played 75 games. I am a huge Atlanta Braves fan. He's been playing excellent, like I just told you. But he's a 21-year-old young man. Why are we signing him? This man, this young player, wasn't wasn't going to hit free agency until the until the season 2027, until the 2027 season. Why not wait a little bit to see if he continues this type of production? This guy's played just over less than half of a of a regular Major League Baseball season. And to bring up Fernando Tatis Jr. again. God forbid something uh, like a buyer's remorse happened because, look, Fernando Tatis Jr., the shortstop for the San Diego Padres, he signed a 14-year, $340 million contract last year in 2021. Obviously, $87 million, or excuse me, $72 million that Harris is going to get over the life of his contract is nowhere near $340 million. And, I, and I'm not saying Michael Harris II is on performance-enhancing drugs. Not at all. But you know what? Like I said, what if what if Michael Harris II doesn't keep up his production? What if he turns out to be injury prone? God forbid. I don't want I wanted to have an excellent career, make multiple All-Stars, win multiple World Series, etc., etc., etc. Anthopoulos, the general manager of the Braves, he's very aggressive on if he sets eyes on you and says, "You're a young star, I'm going to lock you up for a long time on a long contract." He does that. He does that. He did it with the right fielder Ronald Acuña Jr. who was on a 10-year contract. Second baseman, Ozzie Albies, he's on a seven-year contract. Austin Riley, their, their young third baseman, he's on a 10-year contract. And they are all, compared to market rate, they're underpaid. But they're locked in at a very young age, well before they hit free agency. 
strategy-wise, it can be smart. But God forbid any any of those guys has some kind of long-term injury or they just have a lack of production. It can be you're stuck with, you're not really stuck because when you look at $72 million spread out over eight years, it's not that much money when it comes to baseball salaries. But I would have loved, I, I would have preferred to have seen Michael Harris second for maybe two seasons of producing like this and being saying like, you know what, boom, you're going to get rewarded with a huge contract well before you hit free agency because when you're a young baseball player, free agency is really the only time you can make real money. Other than that, you're you're ridiculously underpaid. But congratulations to Michael Harris II and his family. They're set for life because over the next eight years, he's going to pull down seventy-two million dollars. And after taxes, he's going to he's going to he's going to walk away about like thirty-five million dollars after taxes, after pension contributions to the Major League Baseball Players Association, and after agent fees, he's going to come off fifty percent. Anytime you hear these humongous salaries that these sports players play, always just immediately cut it in half because of like I said, taxes, contributions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But still. $36 million is going to set you up for life as long as he invests wisely and he also saves. Cheers to the Harris family. They have a lot of money. And you know what baseball player, what other baseball player has a lot of money? Yadier Molina, who's the catcher for the St. Louis Cardinals. Right now, he's on the restricted list. He's not on the injured list. He's on the restricted list, which means that he's away from the team for non-baseball reasons. If you're on the injured list, it means you... Twisted your ankle, you have a sore back, etc. And the reason that Yadier Molina is away from the St. Louis Cardinals is because he had to take care of some business in his native Puerto Rico. And he's going to rejoin the Cardinals on Monday, the 22nd of August. But the real reason is because Yadier, Mo- Yadier Molina, he owns a basketball team in Puerto Rico. And he owns the Bayamón Vaqueros. Bayamón is the, some town in Puerto Rico. And Vaqueros means the Cowboys. And they actually won the Baloncesto Superior Nacional Championship, the whatever, the National Championship of Puerto Rico. And there were rumors that Molina decided to leave the Cardinals so he can go and watch the championship game and celebrate with the team. But there's also video of some players, or I think it was like a coach, FaceTiming Molina when the Baqueros won the the, the Puerto Rican Championship, the Baloncesto Superior Nacional, the championship league. Maybe he was in the building FaceTiming and he, <laughs> and he didn't want people to see him jumping up and down on the sideline when he should be playing baseball. Because look, the Cardinals right now are, they have, they're in first place in the National League Central Division. They have a five-game lead over the Milwaukee Brewers. And Molina's been injured for a lot of the year. He's only played in 52 games. We're talking about Michael Harris II, who's 21 years old. He's played in 72 games. And Molina, who's 40, what is he? He's 39 years old. He's played in 52 games this year. Molina's OPS plus in 2022 is 53, half of an average player. But there's really there hasn't been really any outrage of Molina leaving his team in the middle of a playoff push. It, this is crazy. Like you're gonna go back to Puerto Rico to support the team that you own in the middle of a playoff push. The reason you own that basketball team is for all the tens of millions of dollars that you've earned as a catcher with the St. Louis Cardinals. But you know what? Molina can do whatever he wants with his money. And he can do whatever he wants with his time. <laughs> with his time. Because speaking of basketball and his congratulations to Molina's Bayamón Vaqueros winning the championship. But speaking of basketball here in the continental U.S. Because remember, people, Puerto Rico is the United States. But in the continental U.S., in the NBA, this reminded me of people leaving their team. During the playoffs, which right baseball is not in the playoffs right now, but like I said, the Cardinals are going on a playoff push right now. If you remember back in 1998, during in the middle of the NBA Finals, Dennis Rodman of the Chicago Bulls, he left the team to go to Las Vegas and gamble there for I think it was like 48 hours, just 48 hours straight of just doing nothing but partying and gambling. And it was a big old hoopla, like, oh my God, where is Dennis Rodman's head? This is a championship. This is the most important thing in the universe. How dare you leave your team? You miss practice. You miss media appointments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it wasn't just Dennis Rodman. Michael Jordan, who is considered the greatest basketball player of all time, he also was and probably still is a degenerate gambler, a degenerate gambler. In the 1993 NBA Eastern Conference Finals, he went to Atlantic City to gamble, to blow off steam because they had just lost a game against the New York Knicks. He got chauffeured down to Atlantic City, which is in New Jersey, just like Somerset, where the Somerset Patriots are. And remember, back in the 90s, 
there were really only two places to legally gamble in the U.S. outside of some Indian Native American resorts, and that was Atlantic City and Las Vegas. Now in the in the 2020s, I mean, you can go down the block and gamble. It's insane. And that wasn't the first time that Jordan left his team to go gamble because he did the same thing in 1991 during the during the playoffs when the Bulls were playing the Philadelphia 76ers. Jordan left Philadelphia and went to Atlantic City to gamble the night away. He got a Jordan got a lot of crap during the 1993 playoffs, but no one really spoke about the 1991 when he did it earlier when he left the team. Granted, Molina maybe you know, maybe Molina went to Puerto Rico to to pay off gambling debts or to gamble or to just watch his basketball team play uh, play and win the championship. But no one's giving him crap. Dennis Rodman, Michael Jordan, thirty years ago, people gave them a lot of heat over it. And you know what else Dennis Rodman did? He did the Got Milk campaign in the mid to late nineties. Do you remember that? All the celebrities would have a a milk mustache, whether they're males or females. And it was it was dairy product saying the dairy industry saying, hey, everyone continue to drink milk. <laughs> and this is where this week's episode sponsor comes in. Tomlinson's Dairies produces milk, cream and a range of other dairy products, supplying more than 300 outlets in Wales and northwest England. We're a family owned business committed to delivering excellent customer service. We guarantee a high quality, fresh product from cow to shelf. We're committed to producing products of the highest possible qualities. Tomlinson's, Tomlinson's Dairies. I love that. They, the Tomlinson Dairies is, are they're building a better and stronger future. It's all about the children. And we're all about the youth here on HBP. So far, we've talked about basketball, baseball, a hockey team, the Pittsburgh Penguins. And in all of these sports, there's something called NFTs that are available to all the sports fans everywhere. And we talked a little bit about non-fungible tokens in baseball back in episode 79. But now we actually have an expert to expand on an NFT on an NFT conversation. Today we have a special guest, Jeremy Bourne, who's the CEO and co-founder of NFT Genius, amongst many other companies. Jeremy, welcome to Hipster Baseball Podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. In the sports world, we don't really hear a lot of about uh, non-fungible tokens. Could you tell us a little bit about what exactly non-fungible tokens are? Yeah, um, I'd love to, because I know, you know, a lot of people are not familiar with, uh, you know, what NFTs are. And I think, you know, NFTs are just kind of like a fad word that eventually will go away and we'll just, we'll know them as digital collectibles, right? But with any new technology, this is our starting point. Uh, NFTs, by definition, are a non-fungible token. For somebody who's not involved in blockchain or crypto, they might wonder, what the hell does that mean? Well, uh, the easy answer, and you know, I pride myself in trying to figure out simple ways to explain this stuff because I have to talk about it with my family and my wife and other people that have no idea usually what I'm saying. So uh, I distilled it down to the following, right? So a NFT is basically a digital asset, right? So if you took the notion of, let's just say, baseball trading cards, and you realize that, you know, especially with the acceleration of what COVID did to people adopting digital technologies, i.e. now we get on Zoom calls versus meeting in person, right? In that same way, how it kind of accelerated the adoption of these digital things, now people are okay with and have accepted collecting a digital baseball trading card instead of holding the real thing. And a lot of people might say, well, why is that? I don't get it. It's the same thing that's really happening with, with money. And the monetary system and why cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are doing so well and being adopted globally is because people realize that it's a unit of account at the end of the day. In the same way that I'm looking at my bank, Bank of America or whatever it is, and I see that there's a debit and a credit, you know, yes, I can potentially go to access that money at the bank and get money out. But at the end of the day, the money that you're looking at on a screen is not like real money. So what does that mean? It means that this entire world is changing to something that is very much decentralized or it's becoming more decentralized because there's a lot of uh, or a lack of trust with these centralized governing parties, i.e. banks, governments. Uh, this is happening more and more with people that are in different types of countries with different types of leadership and government systems in place. So I know I'm going down a rabbit hole where I'm getting complex right now, but I'm trying to set the tone for understanding like why there's this massive movement happening and why all things are moving towards something digital and the digital presence online because the internet runs our economy. It runs our day-to-day. -day. If you think about what runs the internet, well, 
cryptocurrency is the, the, the money for the internet, right? It's the internet of money, right? And NFTs are the internet of things, right? So it's a way for us to transfer assets like art, like different things like that um, across the blockchain from one person to another. So an NFT being a non-fungible token is basically the same idea as Bitcoin, where it's a peer-to-peer transaction where I'm sending my Bitcoin from my wallet to somebody else directly, but there's a fungible value associated with the Bitcoin. Bitcoin right now, I can look up on any exchange and I know the exact price of the Bitcoin. Let's just say it's $20,000 today. I'm just giving an example. With NFT, the non-fungible aspect of that means that it's not directly correlated or tied, tethered, whatever word you want, to a specific value. In the same way that art is in the eyes of the beholder, as they say, and that value is determined by what somebody is willing to pay for that painting or what somebody is willing to pay for your Mickey Mantle rookie card. It's that same thing with NFT. So you think of NFTs as that same token, right? It's a token, just like Bitcoin. That token is transferred from one person to another. Now, the NFT itself is means that you can attach to that token anything you want. You can attach a JPEG, a video file, a redemption mechanism, a title or a deed to a home. You can attach anything you want. Just think of the NFT is it's just a token that gets transferred from one person's wallet to another. And that's as simple as it is. Thank you for that very detailed explanation. Because like you said, there's a lot of people who hear the words Bitcoin, blockchain, that just kind of glazes over their head. Your company, NFT Genius, that is, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a platform for creators and also investors or buyers to exchange NFTs? Or is that also a platform where creators, they create on the NFT Genius platform? Yeah. So um, look at NFTG as we've kind of rebranded to NFTG. NFTG is really, um, if you think about Alphabet and Google, Alphabet is the parent company and Google is one of its products. NFTG is the, is the parent company um, that has created many things. You know, In the NFT space specifically, we've created multiple projects and NFTs, NFT sets across multiple blockchains. But predominantly what we do outside of creating our own intellectual property and NFTs is we actually have a marketplace called Gaia. You can find that on ongaia.com. And what we've done there is we've created a marketplace. And the marketplace is powered by the Dapper Wallet and Dapper Labs. And if you haven't heard of Dapper Labs, you might have heard of NBA Top Shot, which is one of the more successful, if not the most successful sports-related NFT set uh, on planet Earth. It's reached a billion dollars in sales. And, And if you haven't heard of it, the interesting thing and why you should take note, especially in the baseball community, is as more and more people are doing baseball related NFTs is they basically took this concept of collectible cards and they just, you know, turned it into something to where they expanded upon it. So it was a digital pack of cards that you could buy. Uh, It was reasonably priced at $9 as an example. You open up the pack. It's a similar experience to you doing it in person. And when you open it up, instead of just these 2d flat cards, right. With just info on the front picture on the back, et cetera. It is actually a cube. And on part of the cube, it's information about the player, their name, their team on the other side. And then it's a moment. And it's a video clip of, let's just say, LeBron James dunking in a very specific game in the finals. That's a highly collectible moment. And it's also determined by, just like in traditional trading cards, scarcity. So there might only be 100 of these things. So we saw them trade as high as hundreds of thousands of dollars for some of these moments that were highly softer. And once again, they were the first ones to really access a true fan base, in my personal opinion, that was not crypto native or blockchain native. This was just the average fan that wanted to collect a moment in history. And they did so because they allowed people to purchase it with a credit card. So you didn't even have to learn crypto. So we partnered with Dapper Labs, took the Dapper wallet that enables you to purchase with a credit card, making it really easy and taking away all the complexities of crypto and the underlying technology. And we allow people to come onto Gaia and purchase NFTs and digital assets with their credit card, bank transfer, or crypto. I have seen I have seen these cards that you're, you're, that you're describing, and they are very, very cool. And, and it's just, yeah. if someone from a, of a certain age growing up, but you keep mentioning baseball cards, sports cards, what have you, yeah. you're, th- you're just, they're, they're just there. You trade them with <laughs> your, your classmates, your friends. And also uh, another thing I wanted to talk about, because you, you, you touched on it about art, 
of a certain age, you used to have posters of cars, of your favorite sports teams, what what at what have you. And now that NFTs are almost maybe shunting cards out of the way, but at the same time, the, the car the, uh, these sports cards are having like a second life in the secondary market. Mm-hmm. How if if for example, I buy a, an NFT of Ronald Acuna Jr., one of the best baseball players, Atlanta Braves right fielder, of an awesome thing that he does on the field. How can I, is, is there, is there right now a way that you can actually put that on your wall? If you're a young boy or a young girl, because baseball is loved by all or any sports, is there a way right now to put that art on someone's wall, as opposed to just keeping it on your phone or maybe on your computer when you're buying these digital, these digital NFTs? Yeah, no, there absolutely is. You know, Tops um, is a great company that came into the blockchain space early. They partnered with a blockchain called Wax, and they released uh, MLB trading cards. And you know, they were just trading cards as we know them most, right? With all the different inserts and all this kind of stuff. And it was and it was cool just to see them get in and the MLB being open to that. Now, MLB has recently, in the last year, partnered with a company called Candy Digital, which I think ended up getting acquired or partnered with Fanatics. So there's a huge movement of baseball-related NFTs and collectibles in the space. I'm not sure where they're at or what they're doing, um, how successful how successful they've been thus far. But in essence, the answer is yes to your question. So I can collect a digital collectible. I can collect a moment, which I don't know if they're doing video moments or just you know traditional cards. But regardless, let's just say you get a traditional card, you love it. It's a piece of digital art. It's of high quality. Yes, you can co- uh, connect in a device, um, some sort of monitor or screen, which many people do, especially in the space. There's even companies like that do this exactly. I'm trying to remember one. Infinite Objects is one that does a really great job of taking your NFT and displaying it in a small display where you can literally just put it on your desk. So if you had a rare rookie card or you know a really cool highlight or a moment, you can display that. And I do see a world in the future where people have monitors throughout their homes where they're cycling through their wallets and displaying all the different NFTs, you know, that could be worth tremendous amounts of money. I mean, you know, the reason why, and I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but just to help people understand, like, why are so many athletes and musicians and people all in on NFTs and why are they changing their their profile pictures on Twitter and Instagram to, you know, these apes? It's because the world being as digital native as it is now, the old, uh, I'm going to just say the word flex, <laughs> the old flex is, you know, you take a picture, you know, these athletes and musicians, they take pictures of their cars or their houses or whatever the case may be. And they put them on Facebook, Instagram, but the new flex for a lot of these people is changing their profile picture to an NFT that's worth $500,000. Like that's the new era of digital is that representation and self-identity associated with these things that you collect natively on the blockchain. That is insane. I, I obviously I've seen a lot of people with the gorillas as their social media <laughs> profile, but I didn't know it was because they are so expensive. I thought it was just something that they they created, but of course, that this is why we talk to experts like you to learn more about this. And you're right, the Major League Baseball did. Major League Baseball has partnered with Smart Candy. I don't know about their recent acquisition, but of course, the NBA National Basketball Association they always seem to be more ahead of the game when it comes to tapping into international markets and also now into the digital space. And so the NBA is following suit, excuse me, Major League Baseball is following suit in the sense of the cards that they're creating and sell the NFT digital assets they're they're creating and selling are of moments, whether it's a really great catch, a home run, much like you had mentioned earlier, some great dunk by LeBron James or, you know, some outrageous shot by Kevin Durant, et cetera. So they're all moving in that space. But of course the NBA, I think they are the, the trendsetters and rightly so. And I do like how you describe the the monitors around the house because I I just immediately pictured being in someone's home and that and we've all done this and they have a monitor of the pictures with the family and they just change every few seconds of on a hiking trip or maybe a European summer trip they had a few years ago. If you're buying really expensive, unique, uh, unique assets, unique art, you want everyone to see it. At least the people you invite home, not just whipping out your phone or your tablet every time. You want to tell everyone. What you have, not right, exactly. maybe, maybe getting a little bit more technical, but not but just dipping our toes in. I understand that the the NFTs for NFTG is on the the Flow blockchain and not Ethereum. Uh, I'm more I I, I don't under, I don't want to say I understand. I'm more 
aware of Ethereum, did you did you want to ex uh, further detail out what uh, what is the pros and cons of using the Flow blockchain versus Ethereum for NFT uh, creation? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, NFTs, right? I mean, there's so many different blockchains out there. There's like a new one every single day. And, and I think eventually it will consolidate, but as it stands right now, Ethereum and Solana, those two blockchains, I would say the two big winners um, in terms of NFT adoption, then obviously Flow, as I told you, there's not many sets that have reached a billion dollars in volume uh, like NBA Top Shot has. So Ethereum is a right now, and they're going through this big change, and I won't get into the complexities, but it's something called a proof of work. Uh, system um, to where people have to basically do work or their computers do work to solve equations similar to Bitcoin to be able to you know, validate the transactions on the network, which then cause something called gas fees, which is basically just a, a fee or a transaction fee associated with you, know, you buying an asset or trading an NFT from one person to another, et cetera. So it's a, it's a gas or a transaction-based network. And the problem is, is that because it got so much in terms of adoption over the last few years and you know um the more these these um, validators on the network the people that are verifying transactions have to go to work the higher the fees scale so we've seen fees like during times to where there's massive drops of nfts happening and that by the way drops mean sales and everybody wants to get in at the same time it creates something called a gas war or a transaction fee war to where Sometimes people will be paying $2,000 in a transaction fee just to buy a $200 asset, which sounds asinine, yes. However, sometimes those NFTs end up being worth a million dollars or $500,000 or something ridiculous, right? And it's all like speculation. So they're trying to solve that in their network and trying to solve the fee issue. But the reason that we have built on the Flow blockchain, which is Dapper Wallet's blockchain called Flow, is because it is a completely different system and without getting into complexities there it is little to no gas fees at all so it in our opinion is really kind of aligned with where we think the future is which is reasonably priced digital collectibles that are an extension of fandom so you're collecting your favorite teams or cards or players or musicians athletes anything associated with what you collect or like and you can do it uh, and collect in a reasonable way um, with no friction and no exorbitant fees so it's scalable it's it touches the issue of um, sustainability right it's it's very green uh for the ecosystem comparatively to other blockchains that are very intensive on you know computer programming and computer power to be able to generate the functions on those blockchains themselves so with all that said that's why we've picked flow we believe in the long-term sustainability of the blockchain the low transaction fees in the environment, the ease of use to allow people to purchase with a credit card. And most notably, obviously, you can tell we're pretty pretty much all in, especially on sports. And we've created Gaia to be the center point of all things sports, entertainment, and culture. So you'll see a lot of things like with hip hop and, and sports coming into the play, play to earn gaming and metaverse enabled assets and things like that. But you know, they are the kings of sports, in my opinion. They started with NBA Top Shot. Next was NFL all day, which was collecting NFL moments as well. Uh, they've done the same thing with UFC, if you haven't seen that. So, you know, the best knockouts in UFC history and things like that, you can now collect. They've gotten deals with La Liga that's coming, so they're touching soccer. So all things sports and the biggest organizations in the world have either built on or are coming to the flow of blockchain. And we are planning on supporting all of that secondary market trading volume through Gaia. The, the use of flow is the, those selling points, you said that it's conscious of the environment and just the ease of purchase, especially for people who aren't total converts to the digital space of the NFT, et cetera. That's fantastic. But speaking of, uh, the ease of the ease of purchase, we have, you know, we have birthdays to go to, whether we have nephews, kids, you know, friends as kids in the olden days, as you would say, you were like, Oh, this, this young boy likes this player. I'm going to go buy them a poster, and they're and they're going to love it. They're going to put it on the on their wall, on their wall or buy them a you know some packs of trading cards. How do you, as in the, in the sense of buying these NFTs, how can you gift someone an NFT for their favorite sports player or some or, so, or any or something else beyond that? Because I think the the randomness of the sports of the sports card, the actual physical one that we talk about that they used to that were obviously prevailing in the 80s and 90s that the randomness really isn't taken into account 
because the NFTs are very specific. And you said there's because of the low prices, like you can you can afford to buy multiples of them. How so? How would you be able to gift a an NFT to someone of uh, their favorite sports athlete? Yeah, just touching on the randomness really quick is like that's why I love you know what we're doing, and you know we were actually one of the earliest pack sellers, right? It, it wasn't sports related, but our first ever NFT project was called Bitcoin Origins, and it was documenting the most significant moments in Bitcoin history. We made them into collectible cards, and you would open instead of a pack of cards, you would open a block like on the blockchain, and you open it up, and it's just a random assortment of cards. You can get a super rare one, you can get commons, whatever the case may be. So we did that really early on in the space before a lot of people were. And that's the, in essence, what NBA Top Shot is doing as well, is it is completely random and you can get a legendary that's worth, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, or you can just get a whole pack of commons and you're, you're shit out of luck, right? <laughs> um, with that said, how do you gift? Going back to this question is, is that is already a functionality that exists in the Dapper wallet. Um, where you can you can hit a button and it says gift this to somebody, and all you have to do is provide them with your Dapper wallet address, and and literally you can just gift it to them. Um, outside of that, because there's no fees really associated or very little fees associated with this entire ecosystem, if I have your address right now, I could go ahead and send you a moment that I have in my wallet to you, and it really isn't any cost. So that's something that can happen very seamlessly and frictionless. Um, and this is the importance of NFTs that people will begin to understand. Like once they start to let go of the fact that you need to hold something in your hands tangibly, especially with sports trading cards, you realize that if you open a pack and you get the most ridiculous rare moment, right? And just picture like back in the day, you're back in the 90s and you're, or 80s or whatever. And like, let's just say you open a FLIR pack. You were one of those original people and you opened a Michael Jordan rookie card. How cool would it have been? The second you opened it, when there was so much hype around those boxes and those cards being released, if immediately you could put it for sale, somebody accepted it and it immediately transferred to somebody else's wallet that quickly. Like that's what this offers is the ability to do things quicker and more efficiently than ever before. That is brilliant. And I had no idea. I thought, it I, again, not being totally into NFTs, I, I thought it'd be a much more complicated process. But again, these are all great selling points that you were talking about with, on purchasing it, gifting it, et cetera. Because at the end of the day, our childhood isn't going to be the same as our children's childhood or our nephews and nieces. And then you have to adapt to, to them because ultimately they're the ones who are going to be creating their own companies on, you know, good, who knows what web is going to be, what time they were up, web five, web, web infinity. <laughs> but nevertheless, I do want to be conscientious of your time. And I want to leave you with a few, I want to leave the listeners with a few questions for you is what advice would you have for someone who's currently in a different career path, but wants to pivot to NFT sector, to the NFT sector? Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, there's so many opportunities to get into the space and I would just say, if you want like a guaranteed job, <laughs> the one thing that everybody is looking for in the NFT space are moderators or community managers, because half the battle is, you know, obviously you know, we're not you know, starting with massive brands that have this huge user base that's just sitting there waiting for us to market to, you know, a new NFT project is starting from zero. So community is everything. And starting with, you know, things like Discord, which is where all most of the communities begin. It's predominantly Twitter and Discord. They need people that can kind of help foster the growth of their community. So that, to me, that's like the easiest way to get in ever. Um, there's also some really cool job boards and things like that. I know Flow specifically has a job board for people that are looking to get into the space as well. But I think there's infinite opportunities. And I would just say get in, even if it's on a low level, because of the fact that this is, it's, there's definitely a steep learning curve. But once you understand it, you're going to be in a position to where you can really add value to companies very, very quickly. I would just say, just if you're interested, there's definitely easy ways to get in. That might be the easiest entry point. Uh, this this may be a longer answer, but just succinctly is, what was your path in getting into NFT? Were you always on that path to get into uh, this sector? Yeah, just kind of by, by chance, really. I've been in blockchain and crypto since about 2016. I should have gotten in in 2014 when my uh, a guy in my one of my grad school cohort members, you know, was talking about blockchain. But clearly, he had no idea what he was even talking about. He just knew it was like the next thing. 
from maybe some of his smarter friends. And he said, you got to get into this because, and he wasn't even selling me crypto. He was selling me on blockchain. He said, blockchain is this distributed ledger where you can put anything on it. And funny enough, the first pitch I ever got was really in essence about an NFT, but nobody, he didn't know it. And I didn't even know what an NFT was because they didn't really exist yet. He said, you can even put art on the blockchain. And I said, what are you even talking about? How can you put a physical piece of art on the blockchain? I just didn't get it. So I just, I just ignored it. A couple of years later, started talking to other friends. Uh, I was leading a labs division at a digital marketing firm and working on some really cool like AI machine learning stuff. And so I was working with some really intelligent guys and they just kept talking about Bitcoin and blockchain. And I just, I now heard it so many times. I just had to dive in. So first thing I did was just started listening to a few podcasts. Um, and as soon as I listened to a few podcasts about the space in general, I just, I got hooked and I found myself in a position to where I couldn't stop listening. And that was the first time in my life where I was so intrigued by something that it just consumed my every day. And my job kind of went to like 10% of my day and 90% was learning. I realized that was probably unfair for both of us. So I decided to jump full head first into the blockchain and crypto space. I started with crypto analytics because I wanted better information as a trader because I didn't get it. And all the information was kind of disorganized all over the internet. Since gotten a lot better, but that's where I started. And then getting into NFTs, that was a function of me seeing the early days of people trying NFTs with trading cards. And the first thing I think I ever purchased was something that happened on a wax blockchain and it was garbage pail kids. They put them in packs. Love it. Um, they had 120,000 cards and they sold out in 28 hours. And I just said, wow, there's, there's something here. Then they came out with series two of Garbage Pail Kids, which was double that. So it was like 240,000 cards, a lot more packs, obviously. And they partnered with Tiger King to do a Tiger King edition. It sold out in like an hour. So just the acceleration from like three months prior to that, to where that was, I knew that there was something huge happening here. And then I saw obviously subsequently, you know, it went from an hour to a minute to then second sellouts. So at that point, I went all in. I love the garbage pail reference there. I know. And I want to throw you a curveball here before yeah. we get to our last question is, where do you see NFT going next? We know that NFT has already, it's been established now in the art world. And obviously it's been now in the sports world uh, for a few years. Where, What other places in our daily lives will NFT come next? Where do you see that going to? Ooh, yeah, big question. So I think a lot of places, I mean, we've only scratched the surface in terms of like, what this can be. Um, if you distill down to like what it is, it's just a, it's an if then statement. Like it's a smart contract, which is what powers an NFT. So it's like, if you have this token, it allows you to do X. That X can be infinite in terms of the possibilities. It could be, if you hold this NFT, then you get access for the rest of your life to, let's just say, seats on the uh, big green monster <laughs> forever right? In perpetuity. Now, that's something that you can sell. You can sell that token and the rights of that transfer to the other person who buys it. It could be if you hold this NFT, you actually are a partial or fractional owner of this building. And that's freely tradable as well. It could be you have this NFT and it gives you access to this car or to the title of this car, to records. It's literally infinite possibilities. And I'll just quote this gentleman, William Quigley, which is the CEO of Wax, which is the first blockchain I told you about that we launched on, that actually was the first to bring MLB into the blockchain space. And he said that NFTs, you need to look at them like they're mini supercomputers. You can literally program them to do anything you want. I see a future in a world, and I've said this for like a couple of years, and I think we're getting closer, which is you hold an NFT, it's tied to your phone. We all know that there's these native technologies, obviously, inside of cell phones where there's geolocation that knows where you are. So as you hold an NFT, if you enter a ballpark, right, through your phone and through things like augmented reality, if you don't know what that is, you just hold up your phone and it shows your, you know, the baseball field as an example, but then it shows these things that just pop up around the baseball field. So if you're an NFT holder, you probably will in the future get access to really cool things it could be discounts at the park that nobody else gets access to it could be random nfts um, that are rare and unique only to that game as a token of remembrance or, or something or a huge play that happens that you can get access to through augmented reality where you can just press it on your phone and collect it before somebody else 
If you look at Tops now, Tops has done a really incredible job of actually making physical cards in conjunction with really cool plays that happen in games. Like all that's going to be NFTs in the future. So yeah, I think we're we're just scratching the surface in terms of what's possible. And I haven't even hit on where I think it's going with subscriptions. If you hold an NFT, that equates one-to-one to a subscription. And imagine what that could do for subscriptions to all the favorite things that you consume now, whether it's Netflix, Starbucks, et cetera. I am very impressed on the, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the endless possibility of of NFTs. This is uh, this has been a really good conversation because I've learned a lot just by listening to you and not and not just doing my own research. But of course, when you're talking to an expert, that's when you learn the most. I like to leave everyone by talking about local places. And what's your favorite? What, what's one of your favorite go-to local places in Los Angeles? Whether it's for food, for coffee, wh- whatever. It doesn't have to be the fanciest place that you like to go to, but just a place that makes you feel uh, comforted and, and feel welcome at home. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I'm, I'm based out of Orange County. So, so I try to avoid LA like the plague <laughs> because traffic is so terrible. Right. <laughs> so I'm just being 100% honest. But, um, you know, when I do go to LA, there's, or in there's Orange County. incredible places out there. There's tons of food. But yeah, I um, there's a place that I like a lot. There's a few places. There's one called Boss Cat Kitchen. Uh, and I think that one's, I think it's Costa Mesa incredible selection of like whiskeys and good food. And then there's another one, I think that's in Fullerton called Hopscotch. You know, obviously there's whiskey associated with both of those. Like I just, I love trying new things at local brews and, and uh, different types of whiskey. So um, that's great. You pair that with food and those, those you can't really go wrong with either one of those if you're in Orange County. I definitely have to put that on my list when I go to LA, hopefully later this year. Jeremy, I want to thank you for spending some time with us and giving us um, an incredible amount of knowledge on NFTs and all things digital. If you want to take us away of where people can find you and also the company that you co-founded. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again so much for having me. really appreciate it. If you guys want to follow along, um, Twitter is predominantly where, where I reside and or LinkedIn. So LinkedIn, Jeremy Bourne, you can find me CEO and co-founder of NFT Genius. On Twitter, it's at Jeremy, J-E-R-E-M-Y underscore Bourne, B-O-R-N. Uh, you can find our company at NFT genius.com and follow along with the conversation uh, i think on twitter it's at genius nft um, you can find out all things that are happening nftg so thank you again for having me really appreciate it and happy to come back anytime as this thing evolves i want to thank jeremy Bourne from nftg for a fascinating conversation i also want to thank some new listeners this week from kinshasa the democratic republic of congo formerly Zaire, a new listener from Rancho Cucamonga, California, a new listener from Crossville, Tennessee, and a new listener from Cortland Manor, New York. Thanks for listening, everybody. A picture of my drink will be on Instagram and Twitter. Let's get together next week for a brand new episode of HBP, Hipster Baseball Podcast. Bye.